0: Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information, and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, June 9th, we're studying Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 to 18, in today's text, John sees a beast rising out of the earth. This beast exercises the authority of the first beast to make the inhabitants of the earth worship that first beast. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sam Wergau. Pastor Wergau serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Oh, thanks for having me. So, we get started today, Pastor Worgau. Talk to us a little bit about the book of Revelation as a whole. What's the right way for us to approach it as Christians, and why is it a helpful book to us?
1: Right. As with, I think, interpreting all scripture as our Lord tells us to, it's to keep Christ as the focal point of all things and to uh, really, and we'll see this as it goes in, especially as we go into our text, especially dealing with the idea of wisdom, is that uh, Christ is kind of the key to understanding all these things, and especially with a book which has the reputation of being as a uh, kind of confusing as the revelation to St. John, I think if we keep the the first verse of the first chapter of the revelation to St. John in mind throughout the whole book, we see that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, so that uh, all these visionary sequences, all of these strange things and symbols that we're seeing, all actually direct our focus to to Christ for us and the victory that he's won. And I think especially in, like in the text that we're reading now, and when, when you study some of these some of these confusing texts, you kind of see Christ actually uh, exemplified in the opposites. So when we see the beasts, uh, and as we've been talking about those and the dragon, we see really uh, more clearly who Christ is by seeing that which is opposed to Christ. Um, uh, and especially when we get, as we'll see with this one, where things cannot be quite as clear in the deception of the, the second beast really does try to make itself uh, out to be very religious and very Christ-like. Uh, it ultimately uh, denies Christ. and that keeping that in mind as well as we kind of go through this, you know we really have to look at revelation as a um, almost like a, a dramatic movie or a dramatic book where you really need to see the whole thing and not just pull out one scene or another. Uh, we tend to see that happen quite a bit with revelation where people are pulling out just like for example, with our text here today <clears throat> the I, you know, you mention 666 to anybody and everybody knows it's evil, but nobody really knows why, right? And what it actually means. So when we see it as a whole and the whole uh, dramatic reading of Revelation, and you have kind of this uh, 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 depiction of the chaos of earth and the victory in heaven kind of going back and forth interchangeably, uh, it really makes a lot more sense to see the whole picture. And really, I think if you're reading the whole, you really see that scene, the heavenly throne room scene in Revelation 4 and 5 as kind of the most important scene that keeps drawing our attention back to the victory in Christ and the um, the certainty that's found in that while really everything on earth is, is brought into tribulation and chaos, uh, we still see this depiction of the present result in heaven of the victory won by Christ's uh, life, atoning death, and resurrection uh, almost even breaking its way into earth through all that destruction.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and if I can add to all of that you just said, his his life, his atoning death, his resurrection, and his ascension. <laughs> and, right. and I think that's that's where Revelation 4 and 5 does remain at the, the center of the book. Very much so. When we when we started this series, Dr. Lessing pointed us to the importance of the ascension of Christ for the book of Revelation. And, and I mean, as we are recording this, we're right after the ascension of our Lord Mm -hmm. and to have that vision as the center, I think is so helpful, especially as we look at texts like this that might be rather terrifying upon first reading to know that the risen Lord is the ascendant and reigning Lord is a wonderful, wonderful comfort for us as we look at texts like this. So We're at the end of chapter 13 today, and we've already been talking about this is the second beast. So what's the context that we're in? What do we need to know as we look at this part of chapter 13 today?
1: Right, so the second beast uh, presumes a first beast, and that's the one that came out of the sea. We see a lot of um, similarities, but also distinctions between these two beasts. They're not opposites by any means. But they do have a distinctive role. And what's really distinct about uh, each of their roles, though, is the commonality that it has and that they're both serving the dragon, which was introduced in 12, uh, the Satan figure uh, who's been thrown down upon the earth, right, uh, to, to spread his deception. And now the first beast and the second beast will be serving him. So they don't speak in their own authority. They're not doing their own thing. But their whole point and purpose is to to serve Satan in his uh, reign of havoc and chaos upon God's people on earth.
0: All right, so we're taking a look at the second beast that the dragon is going to bring forth to help do his work of attacking the saints on earth. This is Revelation 13, beginning at verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. That's our text for today. That's Revelation 13, verses 11 to 18. All right, so Pastor Wurgao, we're seeing a second beast come now in Revelation 13 11. Talk to us about the fact this is a beast that we're seeing.
1: Yeah, so this term beast, and you might have covered this a little bit with the first beast, because they're both called beast. Uh, that's the term for in Greek for a wild animal. And uh, throughout the scriptures, this really does kind of have a uh, an evil or a sinister um, understanding, both literally and a figurative use of it. So this is uh, most maybe widely commonly heard uh use of this idea of uh, wild beast, uh, Therion, is uh, with our Lord's temptation in the wilderness in Mark. And I think that's kind of significant to, to show that our Lord, uh, during his time of temptation by Satan, is that he was uh, in the wilderness um, with the wild animals, uh, with the Therion. Uh, And I think that's kind of significant to understand that our Lord um, is with these evil, these sinister creatures uh, uh, in the wilderness being tempted by Satan while still uh, the angels are ministering to him. Uh, another interesting point because this word isn't used a whole lot in the New Testament but another place that it is used literally as a wild beast is actually the serpent that attaches itself mm-hmm. to St. Paul uh, if you remember towards the end of Acts 28 after St. Paul's mm-hmm. shipwrecked uh, and uh, he goes to gather wood for the fire and the serpent attacks him. Uh, and, and, uh, I think it's a lot of times translated as like a viper or a serpent and, and clings onto his hand and, and the, the natives of the, uh, of the place where they've landed on the beach said, ah, he survived the shipwreck, but justice is still served because this wild animal is going to kill him. And St. Paul then just shakes it off into the fire and goes on his way, which is kind of, kind of neat to see, uh, to understand that, um, our Lord, uh, granted to St. Paul that, that, um. Uh, that refuge uh, and that, that freeing from, from that, that he didn't suffer the consequences. Um, here, obviously, it, it is a symbolic use, which isn't uncommon to, to the scriptures as well. This isn't the only place uh, that it can, that can be used to kind of be symbolic of uh, evil, sinister people or, uh, or, or things. And so that's what you know, kind of covers the idea of beast. Uh, but this beast, again, is distinct, where the one beast comes out of the sea, this beast comes out of the earth, and it kind of stands in contrast as it comes out of the earth uh, to, the, uh, to the beast that, that, that comes out of the sea. So we're seeing these as two unique beasts. What's interesting is in Daniel 7, which a lot of commentators make this connection between the beasts of Daniel 7, the four beasts that all come out of the sea, but actually in Daniel 7, 17, we're told they represent the, um, they represent, uh, the kingdoms that arise from the earth. So, uh, you know, how much we kind of take from that uh, as far as seeing a whole lot of, of significance with the earth or the sea in its distinct places, uh, we can take it different ways for sure in our, in our interpretation, but commonly we've kind of understood, uh, and we'll, we'll see this as we go a little more into the text, uh, especially with how this beast uh, from the earth kind of shows itself. In a more deceptive way as being very religious as this beast kind of represents where the beast from the sea would represent kind of physical earthly kingdoms and powers uh, political powers if you will Uh, the beast from the earth has been commonly understood as as being more of a a religious deception uh, of that actually supports the 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 first beast in its uh, in its work.
0: Mm. Yeah, we talked about, with the previous beast being from the sea, that when John literally looks toward the sea from the island of Patmos, he's going to be looking toward Rome. And so we talked about the political power that seems to be inherent in that first beast. As he looks toward the land here now, again, literally from the island of Patmos, he's going to be looking toward Asia Minor modern-day Turkey, which is where all the churches that he wrote to at the beginning of the book are founded, mm-hmm. and among the various things that he, well, the Lord Jesus is the one who does the writing, among the various things that Jesus points out to those seven churches often have to do with the matter of false religion. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the connections that Dr. Franzman makes in his commentary, when he thinks about the, the beast that comes from the land, is that we do see a, a more religious aspect to this beast, as opposed to, say, the more political, you know, raw power that seemed to be evident in the first beast. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly, and and in that sense too, it's more deceptive. Then it has the face right, of right. being very religious, uh, but the doctrine's important, and where the false doctrine slips in here, we see it draws its its uh, the attention away from from Christ, even though it, on the surface looks uh, looks very uh, churchly or, or very Christian.
0: That's right. That's right. And we're going to see how these two beasts do work together in concert, very much as the the description of the second beast comes along. The other point that we made yesterday is that the fact that you've got one beast in the sea and one in the land is a is a reminder that the devil, the dragon, as he attacks, he's going to go after you no matter where you are, water or, or whether you're on the sea or on the land. Here comes right. the dragon to attack you. Exactly, and we'll so, see that
1: towards the end of this text too, where it talks about you know, there's like this great majority of people who are deceived by this, and it, it affects everyone, all ages, slaves free, everybody. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, okay, we've got the second beast now coming out of the earth, and he's described in a different way than the first beast. Two horns like a lamb, and it speaks like the dragon. Uh, talk, talk to us about this beast and how he's described. Right. So
1: it's interesting. You have uh, John described both um, what the beast looks like and then how he talks. And I think that's really, really significant because on the surface, how the how the beast looks is two horns like a lamb. Now this lamb, uh, this word for lamb is, is the same word that's used for the lamb, which is Christ in Revelation five. Um, this is how Christ has been described as the lamb slain, but living. Um, and now this beast that arise out of the earth uh, doesn't look like the beast of the sea and doesn't really look like a beast at all. But looks like um, the one who came down to earth to be a sacrifice for sins. Looks like the one, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. However, then we have this, what we have, what appears, and then we have what is heard. And the beast continues, continually speaks. It's in the imperfect. I kind of like that. This is kind of continual language of speaking as the dragon. And so obviously dragon, the Satan, what is spoken, what is taught uh, by this um, second beast, though it looks like a lamb, uh, is the same thing uh, that would be spoken the words of, of the dragon of Revelation 12, the enemy of Christ and his church, uh, Satan himself. Uh, and, and both the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth, we know, are under Satan and are exercising uh, all that they do under his authority. So they don't have any authority or any work that they're doing on their own, but they're serving uh, their, their, their master, uh, the uh, Satan. Uh, but the p- appearance of this beast is the one that is ve- very much more deceptive. Uh, Brighton notes that this beast appears as if it were Christ, the Lamb of God, but since it speaks for the dragon, it is in reality a false Christ. While well, the beast from the sea represents every tyranny by human power and enterprise, political, social, economical, educational, and so forth, the beast from the earth represents then the religious tyranny in brief, the first beast can be called the political beast, while the second is the religious beast, which we've kind of talked about. But there's the there's the deception of it. And it's the deception that Paul's talking about in the early church, like in 2 Corinthians, when he says talks about men who are false apostles, deceitful workmen. And that, uh, as he says in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 13, he says, they disguise themselves as the apostles of Christ. And uh, uh, even as Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. So... This is really significant as we look at what is seen and what is heard, which really does relate to what the church is all about. How do you know the true church? Um, And I couldn't remember the exact quote uh, or where it came from, but I believe Luther talked about uh, it in this way, is to find the true church is not what the eye beholds, but what what you hear with your ears, and that is to hear the true preaching of Christ.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, and I think the the nature of the deception of this beast is really important, as you're pointing it out to us, uh, because with the with the first beast, the way that he spoke, he's given a mouth that's uttering blasphemy, and so that seems a lot more obvious. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one seems a lot more deceptive and a little bit harder to pick apart as to what's true and what's false.
1: Right, and that's going to be very significant. As we'll see a little bit later on, though, because. His his deception uh, is all geared towards promoting the first beast and making the first beast appealing, uh, and it's going to be making it appealing to those who would be religious. Uh, so this isn't the outright um, uh, uh, evil that we would we always lament in the world, but this is this is really trying to make evil look good.
0: Hmm. All right, so talk to us about, about what, what this, this second, second beast does. does in verse twelve it starts exercising the authority of the first beast, and it's trying to get the earth to worship the first beast. So, so right. talk to about the connection.
1: Yeah, exactly. So verse 12, we get the beginning of this activity of the second beast, and we see such activity uh, as an exercising of authority, uh, exousion, uh, of the first beef, beast on his behalf. And it can be translated either on his behalf or in his presence. I like the on on behalf of him and the idea that that, again, this is he's serving this, this first beast, who in turn is serving Satan. Um, but we, we heard in verse 2, 13-2, uh, uh, that this authority itself, that the first beast had, came from the dragon, uh, uh, and the beast, uh, we said, the beast that I saw, this is verse 2, was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So the carrying out of this authority by the second beast is related uh, again, to uh, the first beast who, again, gets this authority from, from Satan himself. Now, Brighton comments on this. It says, The beast from the sea is the dragon's prime agent in his warfare with the woman, which we had in verse, or chapter 12. The beast from the earth is the spiritual power which aids the first beast in its efforts to destroy the church. The second religious beast acts with and under the authority of the political beast in order to enhance and legitimize the stranglehold that the political beast has on the human race. And he does this by inspiring the human population of the earth to worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. And I'm pretty sure you guys talked a bit about that. We can talk some more about this idea of the mortal wound that's healed. This idea that, that nations can seem to f- rise and fall. Uh, and there's this deception to this uh, that, that, that they kind of rise out of that and are somehow stronger by it. But the political powers come and go as signified by the first beast, the head that dies and returns to life gives an impression that at times the political beast is weak or dead. But the second beast doesn't have that. It's continually sanctioning that first beast, holding on uh, to the human race by moving all to stand in fear and awe of it. And I mean, again, we we don't necessarily try to pinpoint exactly, but you see this in human history. You see where the uh, quote-unquote religious institutions or churches uh, uh would be uh, promoting the political power to legitimize the political power. Uh, and that has been true for throughout the Church's history. Mm.
0: So help us to be careful here, because, mm-hmm. you know, at, in Godfrey, Illinois, we pray for our earthly rulers, those political powers, regularly, mm-hmm. and the Scriptures talk about true obedience or a right godly obedience to those authorities that God has given. We're talking Fourth Commandment stuff here, So where do you start to cross that line from the right obedience to authority that God has truly established, Mm -hmm. and then where the Church might turn into this beast that's coming from the land and going completely the wrong way? Right, this is the distinction of the two kingdoms, which we talk about quite a bit as
1: Lutherans, but I think it's important, whenever I teach the Fourth Commandment, to understand the Church's role, the Christian's role in their vocation, uh, in terms of the church and the state, so maybe it'd be good to start kind of from the beginning with this. Uh, so we know that God works through the civil rulers to accomplish His purposes in the world. Romans thirteen, and you know, Paul there talking about the Roman Empire, and in that sense, you know. So, uh, uh, and God does this even through evil rulers, but He always does it for the sake of His church, His spiritual kingdom. So the church is not the state; the state is not the church. Uh, the spiritual kingdom is given the gospel. And the secular kingdom is given the sword and the proper use of the secular kingdom, the state and exercising that sword is to punish wickedness and to reward those who do good. So even if they are evil rulers or even if they're you know atheistic rulers, um, their God given duty is actually to hold up his law and to uh, punish evildoers. Uh, and to uh, reward those who do good. And that actually finds its way into protecting and and uh, whether they realize it or not the work of the church so that the church can function and operate uh, in this world uh, uh, in the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, So Christians are called to trust in God, to honor civil authorities, and even if those civil authorities are hostile to the Christian faith or persecute the church, however, That is much different than what we're dealing with in Revelation with the second beast, where this second beast is this religious, quote-unquote, church, right, is actually legitimizing that which is false by legitimizing the beast uh, that would be, uh, and Satan himself, who would be wreaking havoc upon uh, the church itself. So again, the distinction is that the church... um, pray for our civil uh, uh, rulers, we, we um, uh, understand God works through the civil government, but we must obey God rather than men, and we don't legitimize these earthly powers that are opposed to Christ and the true church um, as we're called to obey God rather than men. So, so I think you can kind of see the distinction there. It's important to understand. It's not to say that civil government is evil in itself, but it's a God-given thing, but the church does not Legitimize or promote the, um, uh, the 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 false teachings and the false um, uh, works of of civil rulers,
0: hmm. right? So, I mean, you you mentioned that we want to be careful here about you know identifying one particular thing as the thing that John's talking about, and yet there are examples of this in history. Do, do you have anything in mind? I'm I'm kind of curious. Well,
1: you can really see, and, and this is an important kind of place that you can kind of see it. I mean, maybe just our most, maybe not most recent history, but one that always comes to people's minds when we study these sorts of things is, is even the the evils of like Nazi Germany uh, in the way the church um, of that time, not everyone in the church, but the religious institution, they sought the the promotion of that. And it makes a lot of sense, right? People follow their, their religious leaders, maybe even more than their political leaders. So when you can get the, um, the, the churches to be promoting something that is completely contrary to God's word, uh, then, then, um, it gives it legitimacy. Um, and I think you can see that, that traced out throughout. And again, this is a good place whenever we're looking at history or even our own history is to understand the foundation of what the church is about is yes, to pray for our leaders, to, 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 to serve faithfully in public offices, right? We're not, we're not divorced from that, but the, Purpose of the church is the proclamation of the gospel and even calling political institutions into uh, to repentance uh, uh, where they have erred from God's word, which you did see faithful people in the church even during World War or Nazi Germany, World War Two, doing this that in Germany as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could go into the just to the Old Testament and think about the prophet Jeremiah and some of the false prophets that he faced and the way the false prophets were the ones that were continually saying, oh, nothing's wrong with the kings, nothing's wrong with with the political situation here in Israel, and Jeremiah, the quote, bad guy, kept saying, no, no, something is wrong, there is not actually peace. I think, you know, to keep it maybe tied to the commandments, we brought up the fourth commandment, this is where we, we see the church's necessity of keeping the second commandment before the fourth commandment, that we would right. rightly proclaim the name of God and use his name, and when we put the earthly authority over the name of God and what He said, that's where we start to run afoul and, and fall into what's being described, I think, here in Revelation 13.
1: Right, and actually what we're doing, Second Commandment, and even go back to the First Commandment, right? Uh, th- that we're holding those in earthly institutions over Christ and His Word, uh, and, and finding our strength, our security, fear-loving, and trusting in those things over God. Exactly.
0: Yeah, that's right. So we're seeing how this second beast functions in a religious capacity, supporting the first political beast, all in service of the dragon, attempting to draw people away from the Lamb of God, who has been slain for the sins of the world and who now reigns. We're going to keep looking at this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Sam Wurgow this morning about Revelation 13. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, June 9th. We're studying Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 to 18 with Pastor Sam Wurgow. He serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Austin, Indiana. Pastor Wurgow, we're talking about the second beast, the one that rises out of the earth. It looks like the lamb, it speaks like the dragon. We see the religious backing of the first beast here, and that description continues into verse 13 where the second beast is performing great signs, making fire come down from heaven. These signs is, are going to deceive people. Talk to us about the work of the second beast now in verses 13 and
1: 14. Right, and as we kind of talked before the break and towards the beginning of this study, w- w- this is really where you start seeing the work of this beast is very, very, very closely, very, very closely resembles uh, the work of Christ in his Church. <laughs> I mean, we know he looks like a lamb already, and now we're going to see him doing signs. And I mean, we hear Jesus about Jesus doing signs and the apostles doing signs all the time. Great works, great signs. Uh, and this is the continued activity of the second beast. It, it works these great signs, uh, miraculous works probably. And, and the point of these things is to point to, the point of signs is to point and seek to legitimize something. Uh, The signs aren't ends in themselves, but the signs are supposed to be legitimizing something. Uh, And that can be, again, if it's something true, then those are good signs. If it's signs that are seeking to legitimize something that is false, then those signs themselves are are wrong. Uh, So just because there's miraculous workings going on doesn't mean that the thing itself that they're promoting or legitimizing is good. Now Brighton notes again, genuine miraculous works accompanied and attended the, the, the church in her mis- the early church in, in her mission. Uh, this is evident in what we read in Acts. Uh, what our Lord said uh, in, in John 14, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And these signs in Mark 16, uh, 17 through 18, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. Cast out demons, they'll speak in new tongues, they'll pick up serpents with their hands, they drink any deadly poison, it won't hurt them, they'll lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. And if you read Acts, you see all of these signs that the apostles are doing to legitimize the preaching that they're going about doing um, and, and for the purpose of the spread of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But Brighton goes on and notes the false prophets also produce pseudo miracles in order to demonstrate and to attempt to validate their spiritual authority as well. So again, the point of the sign doesn't make the thing good or bad or right or wrong but it is to point to and legitimize that uh, what the thing is to to lead people either to the truth with signs that point to christ or to lead them away from the truth with signs that point them to the dragon point them to satan and, and i mean you kind of get a sense of this in uh um in uh the exodus uh, very familiar where moses you know does his works And Pharaoh's magicians do their works with their secret arts. Both are signs. One's pointing to the true God, Yahweh, and one is pointing to uh, against or leading away from the true God. Um, And so we have, you know, that kind of going on. In Deuteronomy 13, uh, uh, it kind of talks about that. If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says... Let us go after other gods, which you are you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So again, there's this sense like, yeah, even if it comes to pass, it doesn't mean that it is right, because the yeah. only truth is in Christ and, 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 and in the only true God. And the signs that would accompany it would uh, uh, either be, pointing to him or pointing away from him.
0: Well, and so all of this reminds us of the importance of the diagnostic that we have to use, which isn't looking at the signs, mm-hmm. finally, but it is listening to the word that is spoken. Right. And even with the deceptive nature of this second beast, that is where the distinction is. It's this one that looks like a lamb, it's speaking like the dragon. And right. it's, it's always in the words where we, where we can see the truth. as to what's true and what's false.
1: And what that ultimate word is going to be uh, is the word of God, and it is the message of Scripture that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that by believing you may have life in his name. I mean, again, Satan uses the Scriptures, and Satan can use signs in these ways, but anything that would would pull us away from Christ as true God and true man, a sacrifice for our sins, uh, is serving not God but serving uh, Satan.
0: That's right. Yeah, John I mean I'm glad you brought up John 20 and and John in his first epistle test the spirits. It's the one that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Mm-hmm. The one who confesses that Jesus is the son of God. Those are the those are the real indicators as to whether you're listening to the Lamb of God or you're listening to this beast that just looks like him. Right. Now, the, the sign that's mentioned particularly here is this matter of calling fire down from heaven. Is there significance to that particular sign?
1: Well, it might draw to mind uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Um, that's a really common story that we know, and that there, that's a great sign. It pointed away from Baal uh, and the false gods into the one true God through his prophet Elijah. Uh, there's also uh, I was just actually reading this when I was studying this text in Second Chronicles seven. The fire comes down at the dedication with Solomon and the dedication of the uh, of the temple as well. But another interesting point where this comes out is actually in the Gospels, when you have Jesus and uh, uh, his rejection by the Samaritan village in Luke nine, uh, and there he's rejected. Uh, They were going to enter the villages of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. The people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Do do we want to have this great sign of judgment? Uh, And Jesus actually rebukes them there uh, uh, and and they go on to uh, another village. So our Lord was not about demonstrating that judgment in his earthly ministry at that time of calling down fire from heaven, uh, uh, at his rejection, that'll be, that'll be saved for a a later time, uh, uh, which is why Jesus rebukes the disciples. That's not what he's about. He's actually going to Jerusalem, uh, to face that judgment of God on the cross.
0: Now, as the Second beast again is doing these signs. It's deceiving people, and the what it's telling them to do is to make an image for that first beast. So, what's the matter of making this image for the first beast?
1: Yeah, this is kind of interesting. So, we have this idea of image. Uh, the making Brighton comments that the making of the image sanctifies this political beast and encourages a kind of occultic worship of what it represents. Now, we're not told exactly what this image is, but this is like an image or an icon, uh, a visual representation. Uh, and the fact that when we have this image, few actually are able to resist, resist this cultic worship of the state and of other human powers and agencies because they're sanctioned by then this religious power, something that we've been kind of talking about, the influence that the, that the beast, uh, second beast has. Um, and, and again, it, it points to this understanding that the worship is pointed towards the first beast, the image, uh, and towards the first beast and sanctioned by the second beast Uh, and influenced by the second beast. Uh, So it's kind of this cultic worship of the state is how Brighton puts it. Um, And it it goes back to this understanding, again, we've kind of talked about that this is the first beast of being wounded and yet living. Uh, 13.3, we have that of of its head seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, again, this is where it gets very deceptive on uh, where where we're starting to look like Christianity, but not quite, (laughs) and that is the idea that it's died, but it's healed. It's died, but it's come back to life. And again, this isn't where we see this is Christ. We see Christ's death for our sins and come back to life, and Him ruling and reigning. Everything else where it appears to have died and come back to life uh, is is a false, uh, false religion and a false icon.
0: We've talked about this at several points in chapters 12 and 13, that all the devil can do is imitate the truth, and this is just another example of that. I mean, you mentioned the matter of the the head being seemingly mortally wounded and now alive, and even the way that the dragon was was adorned, and kind of, you know, with the number seven occasionally, mm-hmm. the devil can imitate the Lord, but that's all that he can do. Right. And when we see that imitation, but that it just doesn't ever live up to the truth, that's another reminder that we're dealing with a deception here Mm -hmm. rather than the real thing. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and that's another interesting point, then when you get into this, um, with this image in 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So this idea of giving breath to, giving life to, to this image. Um, But again, it's what is pointed towards then, that breath and that speaking, is for the purpose of slaying those who will not worship this this beast. Uh, It's for the purpose of actually, uh, here in time, temporally, uh, 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 passing judgment and bringing to death those who wouldn't worship
0: it. Hmm. So talk about this. I mean, this is a really, again, a strange thing that it sounds like the second beast mm-hmm. is allowed to give breath to the image of the first beast. What, what's going on here in verse 15?
1: Right. Well, and I thought, and Brighton kind of points this out a little bit, there is something that if you look at kind of past uh, religions and states and stuff, uh, for, I was actually just reading my, with my daughter about the Sphinx uh, and that was part of the Sphinx in ancient Egypt. There was a spot where the Sphinx could speak, where the priests or, or, or somebody would go up and, and actually with this image of the Sphinx would actually speak so that the people would hear and listen. So there is a sense of that, but I think it's it to even more fundamental deception uh, uh, of taking place the one true God and giving breath and speech to his creation and yet another example of you know, how this closely relates to the deceit of the dragon that the, that the uh, that the beast is is looking um is is uh speaking here um and and the crux of it is what we see here is 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 true and false worship uh the temporal consequences of not worshiping the beast is both death and suffering in this life as you'll see as we'll see Uh, and the inability to sell or to buy apart from the mark that we see in verse 17. Uh, But the eternal consequence of false worship of the beast is laid out later in 14, uh, 9 through 10, which we'll look probably a little bit more at too, but this is when we, so we'll talk about the mark of the beast here too. So you have the temporary suffering of those who will not worship the beast, and that might even be death. But later on, uh, it talks more about the judgment that comes upon those who worship the beast and its image and who receive the mark, um, they actually drink the wine of God's wrath, as I was described it's poured out in full strength. And that's mm-hmm. the eternal judgment that comes from the false worship. Um, uh, so, so there's a distinction here between those who suffer for not worshiping the beast now, uh, and it could be great. It's even death, right? They're slain or they're not allowed to buy or sell. They face these things. Well, what comes later on then for those uh, who are turned to the beast and away from Christ, uh, is the eternal consequence of sin.
0: Hmm. Yeah, as I, I read about in the second beast, the matter of the image coming to life, and then that it would slay those who do not worship the image of the beast. In the scriptures, at least, my mind goes to Daniel chapter 3, and the three men in the fiery mm-hmm. furnace. And it, you know, on the one hand, I suppose the image itself doesn't Seem to come to life there in Daniel chapter three, but the the fiery furnace that's kind of a, a living sort of being. It would you know like if you refuse to bow down to this image here, you will be consumed. You will be eaten by this this living beast. Yeah, and, and the the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to not bow down then I think is is a wonderful comfort to us as we think about again the church in persecution in John's day and the point of him writing this in in any case is to encourage those who are being you know, persecuted by these two beasts and the dragon behind it all to remain faithful even as those three young men were
1: right exactly exactly
0: yeah so i mean talk a little bit more about the comfort here because we, we talked about it more with the first beast because there's it seems a few more more handles mm-hmm. for comfort in that first beast than there are in the second but i think there's at least one there in verse 15. The fact that the second beast is allowed to give breath to the image of the beast is just, even if it's a small one, it is a reminder of who does live and reign mm-hmm. over the dragon and these two beasts, and it is the Lord. So, talk more about the, at least that that brief handle of comfort and hope that we have here in this text.
1: Right. I mean, this is uh, this is always the question, or the the, the that we see that we're not dealing with somehow a a dualistic system where we don't know, you know, what the final outcome is going to be. We don't probe into the hiddenness of God to let him know why he or to 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 question why he allows these things to happen in this way, but it's always for the good of his saints and the good of his church even if it uh, even if it uh, uh, results in in the death and their death and being slain or or suffering persecution that like God allows these crosses God allows this suffering not because he is evil but he actually allows it ultimately for for the good of his church and the glory of his name but all the while he is the one that's in control and even using uh, uh, Satan and the beasts ultimately for his purposes
0: mm. Now, the beast continues its work in verse 16, and in verse 16, the way that it's going to work, and again, in service of the dragon, is to mark on the right hand or the forehead all kinds of people, and it's going to affect the matter of buying and selling. So maybe let's just focus in on the mark, at least to get started.
1: Yeah, so so this mark is, is a sign. Uh, uh, in a sense, it's a, it's, it's a representation. Now, this could be any kind of mark. Brighton notes this. Uh, it could be a stamp, a brand, a tattoo, uh, uh, or even an image or a representation by which a person in his or her manner or dress or conduct declares that he or she belongs to the specific spiritual influence and this, you know, is aligned with this. Um, but we're not given specifics about this other than that those who are marked or sealed with this then um are um uh are ones who worship the beast and then they find their place in that and it will result in we'll see here you know uh again it's for all people uh whether it's a slave or a free young or old um but uh it's going to affect buying and selling it's going to affect their life in time uh which is which is i think significant as we talk about persecution of the christians um now this understanding of being marked, though, I think is also important to understand as we've kind of looked at this as actually too also by looking at the opposite. Um, so the mark and those marked by and the worship of the beast finds uh, uh, our understanding of, of well, what's the opposite then? If the those who are worshiping the beast are marked, what about uh, the Christian? And this actually comes forward right after this text with the lamb and the uh, 144,000. Uh, that they're actually sealed, they're actually marked. Um, and, and that's how a Christian is marked. So Revelation 7 already had this. Uh, uh, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who have been given power to harm, each, uh, harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And they heard the number of the seals, one hundred and forty-four, and that'll come up again in fourteen, um, when he beholds Mount Zion and those who had their father's name written on their foreheads. Okay, so there's another significant. You see it by contrast, the name on the forehead. Uh, Revelation nine also has that, where they have the seal of the God on, seal of God on their forehead, and they are spared that eternal judgment. Um, which I think again, talk about comfort. That gives the Christian comfort to understand that we worship the one true God who's victorious over all these things, even if he is allowing the suffering uh, uh, in this present age and the persecution. But we, his faithful, his, his Christians have been sealed and marked. Our, his name has been placed upon us. And that reminds us of number six, right? With the Aaronic benediction, which finishes with, so shall you put my name upon the people of Israel, uh, I often talk about that, putting the name on it. I think I got this from Norman Nagel. It, it's a brand. It's like when you brand cattle, it's, it's, you're marked. And now those who worship the beasts are marked by that mark. Uh, the Christians are marked by the name of God, that name that was given to us in our bapti- baptism. You're sealed with the Spirit in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's how we are known to be God. Uh, known to be to belong to God, known to belong to God. Uh, Brighton knows the dragon and his two beasts know and recognize those who belong to them, even as God knows those who are his saints. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea of kind of this mark. Uh, Now that mark for those who worship the beast is going to lead for, uh, at least for the time on this earth, um, actual prosperity. They're able to buy and to sell, whereas it as not having that mark that is to be marked and sealed with Christ leads to persecution uh, in this life
0: right so and this is where you and I were chatting a little bit during the break that there are some rather fanciful I think identifications of what this mark is and what this looks like that maybe have to do with things like microchips and credit cards and and, and such things you know very closely tying the mark of the beast to the economic matter. Mm-hmm. I think more helpfully rather than engaging in what has often been called newspaper exegesis in, in in this series rather than that I think the way that you've explained it is much more helpful that for those of us who are marked by Christ that we have been branded by God and he knows us as his own there will be persecution that we will face because we refuse the mark of the beast we refuse to worship The beast and therefore the dragon rather than trying to be very specific about identifications that allows again for that broad application that certainly is applicable for john's day but continues to be applicable to the church in every time and place that when we are marked by christ and not by the the worship of the false worship of the dragon then we do suffer this persecution in varying forms rather than trying to figure out what various economic things that are happening in our world today are this particular thing, right? And now
1: that persecution can be economical. I mean, I think that's important sure. to really understand. Um, I think we often talk about persecution of the church is to be thrown into prison or to be to be martyred and killed, which is true. But um, such persecution of the Christians uh, can find its place in in attacking what we hold, what we hold. Next dear to us than our own lives, and that's our wallets. And whether it's you know um, uh, losing out economically, uh, not being able to 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 buy or sell, be it property, be it uh, uh, goods or services, in those kind of sense, is a very real threat for the Christian, and a much more subtle threat. And I think even one that Christians would struggle with even more than giving your life. You know, I mean, I yeah. think uh, people are more than eager to die for Jesus. We get a little bit more hesitant when we have to lose our jobs for them.
0: (laughs) Well, and I think, I mean, I'm glad you brought up losing jobs, because I think, just as an example of what we're talking about, as one way we can see this at play, we're recording before, right after the Ascension, but this is going to air in the month of June, which your Google Calendar will tell you is Pride Month. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you can think about a faithful Christian who might refuse to wear the ribbon, who might refuse to, to wear the rainbow flag, and will suffer, you know, economic harm from that. I think that is one example of what we're talking about here in Revelation 13. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So without without being, I mean, and then there are other examples too, but that's that's one example. So then of course we get to another just I mean, boy, all the all the hot stuff comes in this text, Pastor Worgal. <laughs> we get the number 666. And and John seems to have a pretty specific identification, one that he seems to think that his readers are gonna understand right away. And I don't understand it right away. <laughs> so, this is what he says in John th- or in Revelation thirteen eighteen. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred sixty six. So, I'm sure you can clear up my confusion for me.
1: <laughs> right. I like how Brighton puts this in his commentary. He says Revelation thirteen eighteen is perhaps the most perplexing verse in the whole of Revelation. However, for John the author, this was evidently not so, for he says that just as anyone who has ears could hear, whoever has the intelligence should figure out the number of the beast for it's a human number. Uh, so, so he does talk about wisdom here, which I think is important. Um, I don't know if, if we really nail down exactly what this number means in very, very specifics. Some have pointed it to uh, it actually being a, a kind of a coded way of talking about uh, Nero, uh, Nero Caesar. Uh, by using using the the Hebrew, um, I'm not smart enough for that, but uh, but but I am. But we do have wisdom here, a- a- and wisdom is Christ. So the wisdom and intelligence that Don speaks of is the knowledge and revelation of Christ, and that is how we understand the mark of the beast is by understanding true wisdom in Christ, and again seeing the opposite of it. Uh, so a person can only understand what is meant by the mark of the beast by understanding. Who Christ is. Uh, uh, Brighton also points out the number of the beast is a human number. That's a number that relates to or represents human life or existence, perhaps even a number that can be understood and interpreted by wisdom available to human beings. Uh, but the number 666 is expressed in a human language and words. Now Brighton makes a connection between that and the idea of six. The sixth day is the, uh, the day when man was created, so it's a human thing. Uh, I think it's also interesting to look at six in terms of also looking at seven. And he picks up on this a little bit. So he says, if 666 is to be understood uh, with the wisdom of Christ, then we look at the relation this in relationship to Christ. If the number 777, so three sevens, were to be used, it would refer to the Holy Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The wisdom referred to at the beginning of 1318 is then the wisdom that comes from God and enables the Christian to know and to understand what this unholy trinity is, that's his word for it unholy trinity, that would be, so you have three sixes, That the dragon, the two beasts, so each beast is a six and the dragon, so three sixes. Uh, and that's interesting too, because if we look at it this way, it's like six is almost seven, and these things come really close to looking very pious or complete. And you mentioned seven being even used for the dragon at times in such deceptive manner. Um, so they're almost seven, they're almost... But, but he says, uh, he goes on to say, they represent at any given time here on earth uh, uh, the work of the dragon uh, and the beast. This wisdom enables the Christian then to discern how any time given time on this earth that evil forces of the dragon, both the secular and the religious are always and everywhere active and at war to destroy the church and her witness to Christ. And such wisdom comes only from God. So again, it's only what has been revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures and given us by the power of the Holy Spirit to rightly understand, it's that wisdom that he graciously and richly confers on on his people here and now, to, to understand who Satan is and who these false uh, prophets are uh, uh, in this world, active at this time.
0: Yeah, and, and in, then the number 666, which sometimes you, you see that number and people raise their eyebrows, mm-hmm. suddenly that number is not something to be feared, because you know who holds power over the dragon and these two beasts. And my, my favorite just brief account in this regard is in the the hymnal, the <laughs> Lutheran service book, yep. hymn number 666. They chose it very specifically to be, oh little flock, fear not the foe. And I, I love that. Every time we sing that hymn, I, I love that, that we don't need to be afraid of the dragon or his beasts. Because we have a champion, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has defeated them. Right, Pastor Oregal, we got about a minute left here. Help us to wrap things up on on Revelation 13.
1: Right, just kind of in sum here, as we're kind of talking about the whole of Revelation as a great book of comfort for the Christian, and understanding that the Lamb rei- that that the Lamb is reigning over over uh, his kingdom, and even for his saints here on earth. When we get to the scary things of the dragon and the beasts. It's the reality of of the persecution of Satan, uh, both in the worldly governments and even in the religious institutions of his church, to attack the lamb and to attack the Christian, uh, the followers of the lamb, in this life. Our Lord doesn't give us anything in his word that isn't for our edification and for the strengthening of our faith. Uh, So even though these things can be hard words at times and understanding them, they do teach us to be on guard. And and to understand the persecution that has come for Christians and will continue to come for Christians, and and to be to be constantly vigilant uh, of 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 um, these deceptions that Satan is hurling upon the earth and that God is allowing for a time, uh, but to find our ultimate strength and uh, uh, hope in the One who has conquered by His might, and 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 we who in Christ have been. Marked and sealed not with uh, the, the power of the, of the world, um, but with the name of God itself, which endures forever.
0: Pastor Sam Wergau is pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. He's been helping us today to study Revelation 13, verses 11 to 18. Pastor Wergau, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, always a pleasure. Thanks. Oh, little flock, fear not the foe. Dread not his rage and power, your Lord Jesus Christ has conquered. Do not be afraid of the dragon and his beasts, but take confidence in your Lord Jesus Christ. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this part of Revelation 13, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.